Let's find our seats. And once we've found our seats, let's stand to our feet, people. Let's stand, shall we? Yes, this means you. It is my awesome privilege tonight to introduce Pastor Shane Willard. Pastor Shane Willard is an exceptional thinker. He's an exceptional communicator. He is an exceptional teacher. But beyond all that, what impresses me about Pastor Shane Willard is that he is an exceptional human being. And so let's put our hands together. Let's honour the man of God as he brings the word. All right. All right. You can be seated. It's so good to be here with you. Um, a couple things be, uh, before we get going. If you're the type that likes following an actual Bible, uh, we're going to look at Revelation 10 and 11. Um, if not, uh, we're going to have some um, slides prepared for you, obviously, uh, to follow along with us. Uh, it's, it's always an honor to be here. I, I had such a good time with the interns this afternoon. Did we have a good time, guys? Come on. Come on. That's my... It's one of my favorite things to do. Just un- unleash me into the room of a circular thing with uh, with young people who are hungry for the things of God. I love that stuff. That was great. That was great. And so I'd like to take a second and invite everybody back to um, for Monday night and Tuesday night. I-, I have brand new stuff. I promise you, it'll bless you. It'll change the way you look at God. And um and and we and and if you're if you're new to the, the way we do things here at New Hope, um on the midweek nights, we really honor your time. Uh the service starts at seven and you will be done at eight. Um and so uh which is, you know, let's be honest, that's you can get home before my kitchen rules comes on, right? And so you're not you're not gonna miss much. So um come on out and be a part of of what we're doing. So um, on the way out today, uh, my, my resources are out there. Um, 100% of what we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have uh, three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities. Uh, and so that's where that's where we do that. Obviously, we have the goal of getting them adopted out into proper homes. Um, and right now, there's a particular uh, challenge in China. So, uh, and so we want to be a part. We don't want to sit on our butt waiting to go to heaven when we die. We want to be a part of bringing heaven to every place we see hell here. So that, that, that's, how, that's how we do that. So, um, oh, one other thing, um, we're recording these things. These are the first time I've ever done these messages. And so I decided in November to take on the book of Revelation. And, um, and so what you're going to hear tonight is, is my effort to read it in a certain way. And hopefully we make Jesus bigger, the cross better, the resurrection central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller. And we apply it in the now. And so, um, and so because we're recording that, the reason that's important is if you're here tonight with a baby, and I don't, I don't see any, that's okay. If you're here tonight with a baby, um, the, the, the one thing you cannot edit out of a recording is a baby scream. All right. So um, let me define that. I'm not talking about little noise or, or normal baby. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about yelling, uh, screaming, crying, throwing a fit, things like this. Um, if that happens, let me be clear. I'm, I'm not upset at you. I'm not upset at the baby. The baby's just being a baby. Right. But this is not the time to let them cry it out. All right. So um, if you would uh, if you would use the, the parents facility until the baby's calmer and then come on back in, um, that'll help us uh, with the recording. Fair enough. Right. Now, when we record so that means you're supposed to laugh when, laugh when you're supposed to laugh, cry when you're supposed to cry. It makes it all better. All right. So, um, so let me, uh, let, let's, let's, let's bring ourselves before the Lord and, um, and get into this. All right. So I get to open the Bible tonight. I love doing that. I actually, um, I take it very seriously. Uh, anytime you open the scripture, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now 
because of what happened. And so I want to look at a particular passage in Revelation that um, is quite frankly, it's tough. And, and, and the reason is, is because Revelation, the book of Revelation tends to mirror our life. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's an allegory, it's symbolism, it's apocalyptic in nature. Um, there's a lot of weird sort of symbols. And if you get caught up in the minutiae of it, you can miss the beauty. But basically what happens in Revelation is it starts out with an invitation to repent and believe a better narrative than the one presented by empire. Empire is, is oppressing people that the kingdom of this Christ is willing to lift the lowly to the level of the elite, cancel all social class systems, no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We have a better story to tell. And it invites us to repent and believe that story. And then, of course, people accept that or not. And, and, and the ones that accept it are called to endure tribulation when it comes because when you are opposing empire, something's going to come against you. And a lot of the book of Revelation is, is, the, is the opposition to the people who say yes to the better story. And then, of course, there's these calls to worship where we reaffirm that story regardless of the tribulation. And ultimately, at the end, God gets everything he wants enemy is defeated. There's a new heaven, a new earth. And finally, the tabernacle of God is with man. And we're invited to eat at a giant table, right? Now, tonight's passage, though, is at the middle of it, which is where the book starts to climax. It's where the book starts to come together. And it's, it's actually a part of our story that I think we're going to find ourselves in. And, and, and in most of our lives, when everybody's life, at some point, you're going to experience a bit of pain, a bit of suffering, that, that, that great faith is not having enough faith to push through every single thing. Great faith is not having enough faith to get out of the suffering. Rather, great faith is a profound trust in the middle of it. And this is what we're going to find in, in this passage. This is Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like that of the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice in heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write that down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it. And there will be no longer any delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So the angel um, went and told him, and he gave me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. This is a reference to Ezekiel 3. We're going to get to that in a second. Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about how many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is Ezekiel chapter three, verse two to three. This is what this story is alluding to. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. 
So a couple of observations about what happened and what's going on in the story. And hopefully we can find ourselves in it. So the angel was evidently holding a message for the whole world. His feet were on land and sea. The messenger eats the message and is willing to bear the consequences. So let's stop and let's think about that for a second. When as people of God, we are called primarily to remain teachable and disciples journeying every day with the infinite possibilities of what it is to be a Jesus kind of person for the sake of the world. That's what we're called to be. If the church is nothing else, it's a group of people who choose to discipline themselves to come together and together they say yes to everything Jesus has for our life. Now, sometimes that requires us to eat and hold a message. Sometimes it requires us to know when to share it, when not to share it. Sometimes what is sweet on our mouth causes quite a lot of pain for the, for the opposition we face. Sometimes as Jesus people, we are called to own a message regardless of the consequences of it. See, God is inviting us to participate in his story. Sometimes sweet, Sometimes bitter, but always together. Sometimes sweet, sometimes bitter, but always, always together. See, story is how our soul is formed. The story comes into a place that is not spiritually neutral. Here's what happens in this story, and it's my story, and it's your story, and it's this story. It just seems to be true. That, that what happens is, is God's way of looking at the world. Jesus's way of looking at the world. And as Jesus people, as people who are followers of Christ, if nothing else, we should be journeying to wrestle ourselves with this. Is my way of looking at the world similar or at least journeying towards the way Jesus looked at the world? See, Jesus isn't something to be believed in or someone to be believed in, as, as if Jesus can be relegated to a bullet point on a pamphlet. That's boring, and Jesus is nothing like that at all. Jesus is not something to be believed in. Jesus is more profound than that. Jesus should be a fundamental way of seeing our entire world, right? It should be beyond belief and more to knowing, right? The cross and resurrection is not something to believe in. The cross and resurrection is more profound than that. The cross and resurrection is a fundamental way of seeing the whole world, that the fullness of God incarnate is nothing like Caesar, rather a God that chooses not to be God and suffer with humanity in order to overcome death and bring new life, new creation and resurrection as a part of his sacrifice. This is what we're talking about here. But that story does not come into neutral space. It's not like that story happens in a vacuum. What you find in the book of Revelation, you find throughout the whole scripture, and you find, if, it's, if, if we're just honest, if we never knew about a Bible, we could give this testimony about our own life. That when we said yes to Jesus, it changes everything, but that yes does not happen in neutral space. There is often some sort of opposition, some sort of suffering, some sort of something standing against it. This can leave us to taste the bitterness in our belly and not just the sweetness in our mouth. This can leave us to taste the bitterness as a part of the story. It just as by, by way of observation, next slide. Mo, mo, most of the initial carriers of the message of God owned the message and then either died or were tortured for what they were carrying. Like th this is the problem with the idea that great faith, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be going through that. Hey, if you just had enough faith, your kid wouldn't be sick. If you just had enough faith that, hey, that adult child that's being rebellious, they wouldn't be, if, if you just had, if, you know what? If you prayed a little harder, worshiped a little louder, that child would not be going through that. Hey, if you just had enough faith, you could save your marriage. 
if you just had enough faith, that marriage would not be going through some sort of rocky patch. Hey, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't have lost your job. If you just, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't go through the suffering. And, and there, there is a word for that. There's a theology around that. And it, it's ancient. It's not new. It's actually found in Latin. It's called bullimus crapimus. Okay. And if, and, and if you want to know what that, if you want to know the translation for that CT, I, I don't know exactly the English. I just know Latin is bullimus crapimus. Cause, cause here's the thing. Great faith is not found in avoiding the pain. It's not found in avoiding the conflict. It's found in a profound trust in the middle of it. You can't make a case that Paul lacked faith, that he died because he was carrying something that he would not vanquish. He was carrying the idea that Jesus is Lord and the only way to save his life was to say Caesar is Lord and he wasn't going to do that because in Rome, you had to declare Caesar is Lord or you died. Remember there was this letter, pretty important letter he wrote called Romans. Remember that one, all right? And remember he says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be Saved. And then later he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit compels them. Why? Because he wrote that to where? Rome. What was in Rome? Caesar. If you said Jesus is Lord in Rome, you died. We somehow dumb that down into some magic ritual we do. What are you talking about? This was more profound than that. This was people so compelled that the narrative of the risen Christ was worth proclaiming with their mouth that they were willing to risk their life. And no one can do that lest the Holy Spirit compels them, right? This is what we're talking about. You can't make a case Jesus lacked faith. Jesus died. He suffered. He didn't avoid the suffering. He entered into it. Paul didn't avoid the suffering. He engaged it. God does not avoid the chaos. He engages it to bring creation. He doesn't avoid the disorder. He engages it to bring order. God does not mind your mess as long as you open your mess up to him. If God is anything, God is not that which avoids the mess. God is that which gets into the middle of the mess and reorders it into new life, fresh starts, second chances, mulligans, clean slates, and the opportunity to write a better story. And this is what we're talking about. See, the message of Christ is sweet, but it enters into contested space. This fact requires togetherness to overcome the contested space. Not one person in here was meant to face whatever that contested space is alone. This is what the church is for. It's about, it's, it's the theme I'm seeing on the screen. I come once a year, I walk in. I knew I had prepared these things before I got here. I look up on the screen and there it is. Come together. You guys are even playing it. Come together, right? Right? You, you guys even do that cool, right? It's why? Because, because the faith journey is not an obstacle-free journey. Rather, it's a group of people that because of our togetherness, we're able to face whatever the contested spaces bring with our head up, our shoulders back, our hands clean, our heart pure, and our taste sweet. This is what faith is. See, the, the, the holders of the message of God, carry it on the inside. In this story, it's symbolically about eating a scroll, obviously a metaphor. He, he, it's symbolically, uh, 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 hey, eat the message of God. In Ezekiel, hey, take this and eat it. It'll be sweet to your mouth. It'll make your bed. This has so many allusions to communion, it's not even funny. It, and communion is about taking a moment and not creating a new truth. 
the best religious rituals do not see people overreact. They go, oh, religion's bad. I'm not religious. I'm just a Jesus person. Well, religion is not bad as long as religion is doing what it was intended to do. Religion is not ever intended to inaugurate new realities. That's called idolatry. Religion in its best form are rituals that remind us of what's already true and invite us to participate in it. Communion's a great example of that, where we are to remember. Communion doesn't inaugurate a new truth. Rather, it draws to our attention what God had already done. This is what it's about. And communion, if I can give you a fre- maybe one fresh way to think about communion, so the next time you take it, you'll, you'll think about this. See, we tend to think about God is big. God is big. Like God's so big. He's unbelievably big. He's holding the whole universe together. Like think about the songs we sing. And when you speak, a hundred billion organisms catch their breath and evolve in pursuit of what you said. Or, or, you know, or, you know, our, in some of the older school songs, right? our God is bigger. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than there's a lot of the bigness of God. And I say, yes, Amen. Absolutely. God is beyond comprehension. God is infinitely big, but he is also infinitely small. The same God holding the universe together is also the force holding the molecules of your skin together so that you don't turn to dust like Thanos, right? It's that. It's, it's, it's the, and, and we sing songs about that too. You are closer, closer than my skin. You are in the air. I'm breathing in so profound about the Lord's prayer that, hey, when you pray, say this, my father who's in the air that I breathe, I stop and become aware of you. See, in one sense, God is infinitely big. In another sense, God is infinitely small, holding the molecules, the atoms and the subatomic particles together that keep us all together. Paul insisted that the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. And in him, all things were made and all things hold together. Yes, Even them, in one sense, God is infinitely big, but in another sense, God is small enough to hold that wafer together. That God, the God that holds the universe together is also personal enough to care about my personal nourishment. And and so the next time you take communion, I want you to remember, I want you to remember that God is not only infinitely big, God is small enough to hold all things together, including that piece of bread. He cares about your nourishment. And if communion should do anything, if communion is about anything, it's about taking the body and the blood of Jesus and remembering what he did. And here's the thing that sets communion apart. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, one body. Whether whether you're white, whether you're black, one body. Whether you're a male, whether you're female, one body. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, one body. This is why Paul said, some of you are taking this in an unworthy manner. And the context was, is that they had maintained the Roman empire social class system and they were making the poor go last. And they're like, Paul's like, have you missed the point entirely? So that when we take communion together, may it not just be a ritual or a tick on the box or a bullet point on a pamphlet. May it be more profound. May we remember what Christ did for the whole world and, and exalt and affirm that we are all held together by the same God. And in that we could never purposely harm somebody without knowing we're going to harm ourselves because we're coming against the thing holding the whole thing together. This, let's say it this way, Mary held Messiah inside. She held the mystery though in her heart. Remember, she was told she was pregnant and it says, and she held these things in her heart. Why? Because sometimes the world isn't ready to hear what you know to be true, that, that we have to see where they are before before we just, it does, even if we're right, we'll be very 
ineffective. See, see, society doesn't welcome the lordship of Christ. And quite frankly, neither do we. None of us find the way Jesus saw the world to be our default position. Why? Because we live in contested space. That as disciples and over the course of time, the way of Jesus becomes more and more and more and more and more natural. The way the Bible says it is the word can become flesh. That, that, that the way Jesus saw the world can actually flesh itself out in, in, in our life. See, good news is sweet, but it can have some bitter consequences. Now, here's what happens. This is the next chapter. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months and I will grant authority over my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. One quick observation about this. Next slide. At this point in history, the temple had been destroyed. So John is not referring to a building. He's referring to God's people. He's saying, hey, measure this. See how this measures up. See how we're doing. But the outer court was the contested space, the the narrative of the nations competing against the narrative of the risen Christ. And the question the book of Revelation asks over and over and over and over and over again is which narrative will you align your life with? Which narrative will you ascribe worth to? The word is worship. Worship is not necessarily singing. Singing can be a part of worship, but worship is where we decide to put our awareness on who we're going to give worth to. Faith is not a list of what words. Faith is a who do you trust word. Do we actually trust that Jesus's way of seeing the world brings life, not death, light, not dark? Now, here, here's the, this is the very next verse. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand, in this, in, uh, um, stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain should fall in the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Once again, another reference to Egypt. This is the pattern of the book of Revelation. As often as they desire. Now, these are obvious, next slide, obvious references to guys like Elijah, Moses, Ezekiel, Jesus. These are remezes. They're allusions back. The symbols connect the dots of what God has always been up to. This is not about the inauguration of a new reality, rather a celebration of what God has always been up to. Sending people willing to suffer and die for the sake of moving the world to a better narrative. The, The beast in the story overpowers them and kills them, just like the enemy killed Jesus. This is what it says. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. So there's all this symbolism. He's referring back to Sodom. He's referring back to Egypt. He's referring back to Babylon a lot where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at the dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice with them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who were on the earth. There are people celebrating the fact that these two guys have died. Now, what is going on here? Number one, let's say it this way. The pattern we see in history and this book is that violence does not produce what you would like it to, even if you're right about it. That judgment does not produce the desired result. Violence and judgment promise what they cannot deliver, even if the violence and the judgment are justified. It just doesn't, it's not effective. Let's say it this way. 
Some view these two witnesses as literal people. And some view these two witnesses as archetypal symbols of servants willing to die for the people. There's lots of references to Egypt, Sodom, Moses, Elijah. And obviously the, the parallels with Jesus are obvious. Someone who comes for three years and prophesies and gets overwhelmed by the forces of darkness and killed only to later in the story rise again and draw people into a new creation. This is obvious allusions to Jesus. However we read it, the result is that they're preaching their humility and their service works. When they rise from the dead, it works and the people repent. They turn around. Now, what do we do with this? That, that's my best effort at explaining what happened. My question is, what do we do with what, you know, what's going on in ourselves with what happened? Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Are we imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, the self-emptying God revealed by Christ on the cross? If the fullness of God incarnate was revealed in Christ Jesus, in other words, the ultimate picture of what God is, is found in Jesus, then the ultimate picture of God is a God who chose to empty himself of his deity and suffer and die and join humanity with the struggle to fix the narrative and bring about a better world. And that is worth being a part of. Right, let's say it this way. Are we living with the conviction that God's kindness brings people to repentance that we're desiring? Or are, are we still relying on judgment, shaming, guilt, fear? What we find is that the true permanent life change we're looking for is a true revelation of the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Life is often not Revelation 20, where God finally gets what he's arriving at all along. Are, are our lives right now wrestling with Revelation 11, where God's servants die? What, what you find in this story is that this story mirrors our story. That at the end of the day, God gets what he wants and he accomplishes his plan. And along the way, there's some bumps and there's some suffering and there's some obstacles. And our life goes, and if you're going through that season in life, it's not because your faith is weak. It's because that's the nature of life. What, what are you carrying that your soul, that is soul disrupting? What are you carrying that is soul? Let's say it this way, next slide. Can we learn to grieve well? Grieving well is a part of our journey. Christ dies. Cancer happens, children rebel, needless wars happen, and people doing nothing but serving God are suffering. Here's the main question when it comes to suffering and obstacles and grief, and that is this. Do we believe that God will save us from our suffering? Or can our faith be something more profound than that? And we believe that God will be present with us in it. There's a fundamental difference between saying, I will have enough faith that God will get me out of this and, or I will have such a profound trust just to know and be okay that God is present with me in it. Paul said it this way, for me to live is Christ. To die, that'll be gain. In other words, whatever happens to me here, I know that God is present with me. You see it in the Old Testament as well. We believe our God will save us, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. He will be with us in the fire. So how do we, which leads to this question, how do we grieve in a healthy way? I think the Jewish culture offers the rest of the world a lot of different things that are helpful, but these two things primarily, the way they think about money and stuff and assets and charity and generosity, I think is profound. I think the other thing that's profound is how they do grief and how they handle the obstacles and how they define faith around that. Healthy grief in Jewish culture is defined with two things. One, to tear your clothes. 
And because we're Western world, I'm going to put the word symbolically up there, right? This is not necessarily literal. To tear your clothes. The, 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 the word, the Hebrew word for that is kraya. I know that sounds a lot like cry out, and it should. Kraya was when you tear your clothes. The idea is, is to remove the outer shell and let someone see the real inside. To remove, the, let's say it this way for an Instagram generation, to, to remove the filter from the photo. To, 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 to go sans makeup. That, that, that actually stuffing it down doesn't work. The, the way to handle grief in the most healthy way is to cry ah, to tear our clothes. The second way is to cry out, to, not, to don't be fake, to be honest about the fame that is affecting you, to, to journal about it, to sit with your small group and go, hey, this is what's going on. I'm gonna tear my clothes symbolically. I'm gonna remove the shell and allow you to get in there. I'm gonna be teachable along the way because I believe that God is present with me here. And if that means God is present in you, then that's the way. See, see, grief in Jewish culture goes through four stages. One, death to burial. So when someone dies, there's a death to burial stage where the griever is given two things as a gift, privacy and pain. We allow them to feel the pain with no expectation on them. They're giving privacy and pain. But then there's burial to sitting shiva. Sitting shiva just literally means to sit for seven days. This is what they would do. They would sit with the grieving person for seven days. We would tear our clothes and we would take ashes and put it on our face. The reason is, is have you ever seen someone in deep grief weeping? There are involuntary muscular structures in your face that you cannot duplicate that what a real cry will do. A real cry is hard to duplicate with the face muscles. And so what they knew was, is that if people aren't free to cry out and weep, their grieving won't be complete. So what they do is to remove the embarrassment of how ugly you can be when, when, when we're truly grieving. Your friends, when they sat with you, they, their goal was to become the ugliest person in the room so that if anybody came in, they would look at them and free you to cry, to free you to grieve. This was brilliant stuff. And here's the great thing about sitting Shiva. In sitting Shiva, I was not allowed to speak to the griever unless the griever spoke to me. How brilliant is that? It removes the pressure of me having to have answers. And it removes the pressure from them from having to entertain. We give them the gift of our presence. Because nothing's worse than when somebody's in great grief than some know-it-all trying to give some pithy answer to a complex grief. It's just, the, the Jews do away with that. They say, no, we sit shiva. It's sitting shiva, not allowed to speak. You just give them the gift of your presence. The third thing is from burial to one month. In burial to one month, you're given grace. This is, where, this is where you're invited to parties. You're invited to things with no expectation of coming. And then, and then from burial to one year, you're given the gift of a voice. The grieving person is assigned a minion. A minion is a small group of 10 people. Uh, the grieving person is, is assigned a minion. And the minion's job is to pray the prayers for the grieving person because they can't find words for what they're going through. It was essentially this, as your small group, we know that you're in too much pain to pray. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray your prayers for you. We're gonna come up with the words for you. We're gonna stand in the gap for you. It is a profound way to do life together in community because here's what happens. In the Western world, 
We find so much pressure in having to solve the problem that sometimes we absolve ourselves from the responsibility of just being present in it. It would sound like this. Hey, that medical test, that medical test you're waiting on the results for, I'm not a doctor. I, I can do nothing. I can do nothing to solve that problem, but I promise you will not be alone in it. I will be with you with it the whole way. That situation with your adult child and they're driving you nuts, you know what? I can't do anything about that. And quite, quite frankly, neither can you. You can't control 30-year-old children. Can't do it, right? And it's taken whatever journey to realize that. You can't do it. I can't do anything to solve it, but I can see it's causing you pain. I can't do one thing to solve it, but I can give you the gift of my presence. You will not be alone in it. And if you run out of words to say, I'll pray your prayers for you. I'm gonna stand there with you. Why are small groups so important? Because without them, you enter into the contested space alone. And what small groups do is you have people who come together and they say, you know what? I have an excess, I had a great week. I had. I have an excess of hope. You look like you're running a little low on hope. Would you like to borrow some of my hope? See, this is what community is all about. This is where we pay attention to other people and we give them the gift of our presence without the pressure of having to solve it. See, in this story, God's plan dies and then resurrects. In the gospel, Christ dies and then resurrects. That for every resurrection, you can't have a resurrection if there's not a death. That, that, that part of what makes the resurrection so special is that the cross happened. Part of what makes the revival in this story special is that these two guys died. And here's the thing. In our life, we will have seasons of the cross, but the thing about Christ's way of seeing the world, the thing that's not allowed is despair. Despair is the conviction that my tomorrow is simply a repeat of yesterday. That is not allowed in resurrection because resurrection screams aloud that you never know where God might engage your tomorrow that fundamentally changes everything. You never know where new creation can burst forth right in the middle of this one. You never know where you're gonna get a fresh start, a second chance, a mulligan, a clean slate and the opportunity to write a better story. This is what the journey with Christ is all about. And I think God lives this out. Next slide. Remember when Christ dies? The gospels all agree on this, that the first thing that happened was the veil tore. Well, hang on. What was behind the veil? The holy of holies. So the veil was the thing covering God. Actually, throughout the Old Testament, God says, when you're in great grief, tear your clothes. In the New Testament, what you find is when God the Father was in great grief, he tore his clothes and opened himself up to the whole world. God was living what he commanded us to do, not as a doctrine, but as a fundamental way of seeing the world. God's like, if you want to know what grief and openness and authenticity and, and community, if you want to know what that does, I'm going to remove the veil and let myself be known to the whole wide world. Watch what'll happen here. Next slide. See, grief and grace made the way for the whole world to experience God. So a couple of questions I want us to wrestle with because great messages are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So a couple of questions. One, do we believe we're alone? And, and here's the problem with a great church like this, not a good church, a great church. The problem with a great church like this, with all that energy and, and people getting on the floor and jumping and, 
and, and there was one guy that missed his cue and he was the only one standing. Everybody else was down. Remember that? Yeah. There's a, there's a way that the energy and the atmosphere, you could come into a place like this and have an authentic, meaningful encounter with God. You can listen to a pretty good preach and go, you know what? I found myself in that story and it be authentic and meaningful, but you can leave not dealing with the idea that you still feel alone. And here's the truth. This is why small groups are important. This is why community is important. This is why after parties are important because if new hope doesn't carry any message, it's that we are teachable people who are journeying to be disciples of Jesus Christ by growing into what he has called us to be. And we do that together. If you don't have the words to pray, we're gonna pray it with you. If you don't have the words to journal, we're gonna help you journal. We're gonna help you along the way because if nothing else, you are not alone. Number two, who can you invite to carry the grief and grace with you? Maybe, and this is the gap. Sometimes people overreact to stuff like this and then they just put all of it on Facebook. That's dumb. What are you doing? But if you don't have two or three people that'll carry it with you, you're missing a beautiful part of what it means to see the world how Jesus saw it. Number three, where should we tear our clothes symbolically? and cry out? Where do we need to engage in some cry and quit pretending? Maybe we could ask it one last way. Can we engage the full story of the cross? See, the cross is a story of great victory for us. But in that moment, it was a moment of great pain and suffering. The fullness of God incarnate had come to save the world and the enemy killed him. That is a death. That is a defeat. You can't frame that another way. And, and, and at the cross is this profound doubt. The central cry of the cross is not, I still have enough faith for you to get me out of this. No, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you ever have felt like God has left you, that just means you're identifying with the Christ on the cross. See, to identify with the Christ on the cross means you have to accept both sides. The side that brings resurrection, but also that moment where sometimes we do feel like God has forsaken us. And the answer in that moment, partly, is God's people. God's people are meant to come together and remind us, no, 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 no. God hasn't forsaken you because I'm still here. And if I'm still here, God's still here, right? If I ain't left you yet, God surely hadn't, right? Because even the Christ on the cross my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, great faith is not the absence of doubt and questions. Great faith is the presence of profound trust, even when it looks like it's all over. See, Jesus overcomes death. How do you overcome death? You don't run from death. You engage it and you beat it by resurrecting. Because now there's new creation bursting forth right in the middle of this one. Fresh starts, second chances, do-overs, clean slates, mulligans, and the opportunity to write a better story. I bless you, my brothers and sisters. If you're going through times of great pain, I bless you to know that you're still people of faith. Keep your head up, your shoulders back, your hands clean, your heart pure, your taste sweet. Because the Christian worldview is that resurrection is right around the corner. You never know where new creation is fixing to birth forth in that situation. So I wanna pray for us. I, and, and not in the, let me say a prayer for you. I, I mean, I want us to join together in full awareness of God and let's share our hope 
with our brothers and sisters on our right and on our left, in front and behind. So Lord, let this place be a dwelling place for your name, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. And what would we feel like now, Lord, if we could know you were with us? And for our brothers and sisters in this room, may there be a profound oneness. And we speak joy and peace and grace in the middle of their obstacle. Lord, let them have part of our hope. To the one on my right, to the one on my left, to the room, in the after parties, in the small groups, in the discipleship journaling together. May we be reminded, one God, one body, one Christ, one Savior, one humanity. May we live this as a fundamental way of seeing the world. Teach us to grieve well. Amen. Thank you so much for me to be a part of, uh, of your life and being so kind to me. Thank you so much. I hope Jesus got bigger. The cross worked better. The resurrection central. Hope scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I can't wait to journey with you for the rest of the week. The good thing is, is that at this point in the story, Revelation takes a really nice turn. All right? So we'll see you guys Monday night. Grace and peace, everybody. Can we thank Pastor Shane? Come on, let's really give it up for him this evening. And uh, would you stand with me right now? I just love that message about, about how much God wants to become part of our story. I really feel like, you know, looking across a room this big, there are so many people that are uh, on a journey that, and, and everyone's journey looks completely different. And I don't know what journey you're on at the moment, but if we could take a moment right now to consider that, consider where we feel like we're at in life, consider the story that you've been writing and, and, and where you feel like that's at. Maybe like Pastor Shane said, it just feels like a mess. Maybe you feel like you're alone. Maybe you feel like you've stuffed up so much that you're so far away from God. We're all somewhere along in this journey and some of us here are just trying to hold it together one, one, one day at a time. But I love, I love the message of Jesus. I love that, that He just removed everything that would ever stop us from coming to God. He took everything away that would ever stop us from having an, an, an encounter and a relationship with Him. And so tonight, I want to give an opportunity to you to bring Jesus into your story. And maybe you've never had Jesus as a part of your story. Maybe you've walked with God before and then walked away and you want to bring Jesus back in tonight. This is your opportunity because there is nothing holding you back. This is a moment for you to respond and bring Jesus right back into the center once again. So can I get everyone to just close their eyes? And again, I just want us to take a moment to consider our journey and where we're at. So could you do that right now? Consider where you're at and ask the question, do I want to bring Jesus into my story right now, tonight? That's the opportunity that you have right now. And if so, I want to pray with you. I just believe and know that God's going to do something amazing in your heart tonight. And if that's you, can you just lift your hand right now? Because I, because I want to pray and believe with you for what God has for your life. If you want to begin to write Jesus into your story from today onwards. 
Just lift your hand right now as I look across. And everyone keep your eyes closed just for the sake of privacy. This is between you and God. Yep. Thank you. Anyone else? This is your moment. Thank you. Thank you. You want to write Jesus into your story right now. You want to bring him back in so that he can bring all things back together. Awesome. Thank you. Anyone else here this evening? Okay, great. I'm just going to pray. Lord, thank you for these people that have made that decision right now to bring you back into the center, whether for the first time or maybe once again. And I just pray, Lord, that all of us walking out of here would walk our journeys with you, that you would be in the center, Lord, that you would be bringing all things together. God, that we would walk out knowing that we are not alone, but you enter into our story, no matter how imperfect it looks. In Jesus' name, amen. And hey, if you made that response, if you put your hand up, or maybe you didn't put your hand up, but you just know that's what you wanted to do this evening, then uh, we're going to pray this prayer that's on the screen out loud and as a church family. And I just believe that as you pray it, if you pray it with authenticity, then Jesus is going to become part of your story this evening. So let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for forgiving me. Come into my life and I will follow you. Amen. Amen. Come on, can we give a hand, a round of applause for people who just made that decision? And uh, that's because we're, we're, we're always so excited for anyone who takes steps towards God. And so we want to do as much as we can to help you along the, in that journey. And quite possibly the best thing that we can do is to get you your own copy of the Bible. And so uh, if you're a paper person, we would love to give you a Bible for free. Um, so see us after the service, anyone with a volunteer t-shirt or go ahead over to the connections team. There's an orange, uh, sorry, a mustard banner there that you can see and grab a Bible from them. We would love to answer any questions that you have. Uh, but hey, if you came with someone, why don't you talk to them about where you're at with your journey? Find someone to talk to and discuss where you're at. And I just can't wait to see what God's going to begin to do in your life. Amen.